Well, Imago Dei, it is a Latin term that simply means the image of God. And as depicted in this uh, uh, masterwork painting, uh, the hand of God reaching out uh, for the hand of man. Man made in the image of God. It's a concept that comes from the very first chapter of our Bibles, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created humans in His image. In the image of God, He created them. He created them male and female. Now, if you're like me, you always read that verse or hear that verse and think about us being created in the image of God in that, well, that we look like God in the sense that, well, I guess God has two eyes and two ears and a mouth and two arms and two legs and so forth. But I believe it means so much more than that. I believe it means that we are called to reflect the image of of God. One place we see that is in First uh, Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet, is speaking to Saul, the first king of Israel. And he poses a question, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Fat of rams, of course, referring to the process, the ancient process of making sacrifices. Because the image of God starts with obedience. And so uh, the question then is posed here. You know, hey, Saul, and of course it speaks to us today, hey, y'all, what what does the Lord delight in? Does he delight in sacrifices or does he delight more in being obedient, obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than than sacrifice. We have to understand the, the system of sacrifices, and it's made clear in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. But the system of sacrifices was never meant to atone for sins. The blood of Christ that we celebrated as we gathered around the table this morning, that is what atoned for the sins of all humanity. The system of sacrifices was intended to help people remember what they had done wrong. When they were making sacrifices to atone for sins or because of their sins, it was a physical reminder, I've done wrong in the eyes of God. And so if you go to the trouble of sacrificing something on that altar then you are reminded of what you've done. Now, maybe you remember as a child, if you ever had to write off. Hopefully, I'm not the only child who ever had to write off. Okay, thanks, Danny. Misery loves company, right, brother? Yeah, and so I remember, you know, writing, you know, I will not talk in class. Imagine that. 
You know, me talking in class. Right, I will not talk in class. Or here's one for, you know, Mokapu Elementary School when Dad was stationed in Hawaii. I will not run on the lanai. I bet none of y'all ever had to write that off a hundred times, right? I will not run on the lanai. It's, a, it's like a wide sidewalk is what the lanai was. But yeah, and so you, you had to write off. Why did teachers make you write off? Because they wanted you to remember your transgression, right? They wanted you to be reminded of what you'd done and motivated to not do it again because you missed recess because you were writing off, you know, and then you learn how to write off more efficiently. So that I'm telling on myself there that I had to write off different times in my life, but you learn to write I and then will and then not and then yeah, and so you learn to do it, you know, so I man, I want to get this done. So maybe I can get out there and catch the last five or ten minutes of recess, maybe. But yeah. And so we, you know, it was it was a reminder. And so whatever punishment we have to do, it's a reminder. As an adult, one time I had to go to go to uh, traffic school, and so traffic school, you know, giving up three hours of an evening of my life in a courthouse, uh, you know, there was, with no one there that I knew, and it's a reminder that you know, hey. You know, next time, think twice before you exceed the speed limit, citizen. And so that's what the sacrificial system was helpful for them. Now, there were sacrifices certainly for other things besides just sin. But those sacrifices for sin, it taught them that, you know, to remember, you know, that I've done something wrong... I don't want to do that again. But the sixth system of sacrifices was also about legality. And so what Samuel wants Saul to understand and what God wants us to understand is that listening to the voice of God and being obedient is not about legality. It's about relationship. And so if we are... If we're doing something, you know, sacrificing was about remembering. If we're already obedient, it shows that we already remember. That we know what we're supposed to do. And so, Jesus teaches about obedience in Luke chapter 6. Beginning with verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now church, let's listen to that last part again. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, the mouth is the exhaust pipe for what's in the heart. If someone's negative all the time, if someone's critical all the time, they're revealing the nature of their heart. But you take those people who are encouraging those people that speak 
good thoughts into people's lives on a regular basis, they too are revealing what's in their heart. Now, if you're like me, you read a verse like that and you start thinking about everything you've said. Everything you've ever said that you wish you could take back. But of course, once you say something, you can't, can you? No, it's out there. It's out there. It's like that text message that you send and you wish there was a way to hit a delete button and delete it. But no, once it's sent, once it's on their phone, it's there, right? And then you question, well, I hope they understand the the way that was meant. I hope they don't take that as a harsher tone than what I intended. And so we have to remember that if we're going to be the image of God, the image of God is like that tree that bears good fruit. And then moving on, Jesus says, as He concludes the Sermon on the Plain, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, you pair that with what we just read. And Jesus is teaching here about the condition of the heart... And Jesus is teaching here about being obedient, about listening to his teachings. Very plainly, why do you call me Lord and then you don't do what I say? And then he says, it's like that house that's built. There's the house that's built and here comes the rough stuff and the house stands. Or there's the house that's built on a very shaky, unstable foundation. And when the storm waters rise, that house comes crashing down. There is a total collapse. And we can look at that and think of that total collapse as being our relationship with God in the sense that, you know, when we have a total collapse, when our spiritual foundation is not on solid ground, when it's on shaky ground... We do things, we bear that bad fruit. The bad things that are in our heart come out of our mouth. And we're in danger of losing our reputation. That collapse could very well be the collapse of our Christian witness. I've told the story before that years ago, uh, I was I was working for a company and I had... Uh, I had uh, had a really good sale, about an $85,000 sale the night before. Stayed late to close it out and then came in the next day on my, on my day off to write up the deal. And I thought, here I was, you know, model employee. 
right? You know, $85,000 sale, come in the next day, day off, don't even have to be there. Could have waited till Friday to write it up. But I stayed late on Wednesday night to close it. I came in Thursday morning to write it up. And then I told my boss, because while I was there late, some, one of our contractors called, and contractors were often the bearer of bad news. Uh, hey, you know, the weather isn't cooperating, and it's, the ground out there is too soft, and we can't get out there. Perfectly understandable about something. But then the next day, you know, the boss is praising me one minute for the deal I closed the night before. And then I said, oh, by the way, so-and-so called. And he just just about blew his top at me. Just and all I was was the messenger. I had nothing to do with the contractor and, and their schedule. But I had seen him blow his top so many times before and I wasn't about to have it that day. And something came out of my mouth to try to close his mouth, my little attempt at a preemptive strike. And what came out of my mouth, church family, almost cost me my job. And then when I told Stacy about it, because I thought telling her that I might have lost my job was kind of something I needed to pass along to her. And she responded, she said, godly wife that she is. You know, losing your job is not the worst thing. You might lose in all this. Those guys look to you as a man of God. What you may very well lost by saying something like that is your Christian witness. And she was exactly right. Because I'd worked with these guys for months. And we'd put in some long hours together. We'd put in some 45, 50 plus hour weeks together. And they knew that I was somebody who attended church they knew that I was somebody trying to never project an image of being better than anyone else but just being faithful and obedient and then it got to where some of those co-workers would come to me with their problems some of those co-workers would come to me when they were wrestling with spiritual situations and I have no doubt some of you all know what that's like and I'm grateful for that I'm grateful that you are reflecting God's image in the workplace some of our teenagers might be doing a wonderful job reflecting God's image in their schools and if that's the case God bless them and to God be the glory But church, I tell that story once again, as much as I hate to, to say that if we're not careful, if we're not careful, in just a moment, we can lose our Christian witness. It drops like a thud. It drops like a collapse. And so that is something that we have to be aware of and be careful of. Switching gears, I don't know how many of you know anything about quantum physics. Or, as I've heard it now understood, uh, the, the term quantum mechanics is often used. But these are people that study 
the microscopic stuff. These are people that study like the, the, the smallest forms of something. Molecules, okay? Molecules, atoms, subatomic particles. It has been demonstrated to hold for complex molecules with thousands of atoms. Uh, quantum mechanics does, but its application to human beings raises philosophical problems. I thought that's interesting. Its application to the universe as a whole remains speculative. So in other words, you know, much of that that God created, okay, uh, quantum theory, quantum mechanics, may not apply. In other words, God is... Bigger, what God has created is more complex than people can always easily figure out. But I came across this article uh, written by a guy, and this print's kind of small, but uh, his name is John Polkinghorn. Uh, if your name is Polkinghorn, you should probably study uh, study you know something like physics, okay? Uh, but uh, he writes, this is a long article, I'm just going to read a, a small a little excerpt from it, just a few paragraphs here. Uh, but this is fascinating stuff, because he's talking about being a Christian and being a scientist, and the fact that those things do not have to be mutually exclusive. That people are surprised when they find out that he is a man of faith, as well as being a scientist. And so, uh, he says here, the quantum world is fuzzy and unpredictable. We cannot imagine in everyday terms what it is like. <coughs> Nevertheless, we can understand it using mathematics and the special set of quantum ideas which we have learned from a bottom-up approach to atomic phenomena. No one could have guessed beforehand that matter would behave in this very odd way when looked at subatomically. In fact, it took many extremely clever people 25 years to figure out what was happening. He goes on to say, Now, if the physical world is so full of surprises, it would be strange if God did not also exceed our expectations in quite unexpected ways. Common sense thinking by itself won't be adequate to tell us what God is like. We will have to try to find out from how he has actually made himself known. To see the Bible as a source of evidence about how God has acted in history and, above all, in Jesus Christ is a natural strategy for a bottom-up thinker to pursue. There is an odd view going around that faith is a matter of shutting one's eyes, gritting one's teeth, and believing impossible things because some unquestionable authority tells you that you have to do so. You get what he's saying there, right, church? That some people say, oh, faith, you're just... You're just closing your eyes and gritting your teeth and you're just, you're just hoping that it's true and there's some authority out there that's just beyond questioning. And so you just have to take their word for it. He says not at all. He says the leap of faith is a leap into the light and not into the dark. 
It involves commitment to what we understand in order that we may learn and understand more. You have to do that in science. You have to trust that the physical world makes sense and that your present theory gives you some sort of idea of what it's like. You're not going to make progress unless you're willing at times to stick your neck out. You're not going to grow as a child of God, are you? Unless at times you're willing to stick your neck out. You're willing to believe in something that cannot be proven. Isn't that the very definition of faith, church? Yeah. He says you have to do the same in the righteous quest for truth. We shall never have God neatly packaged up. He will always exceed our expectations and prove himself to be a God of surprises. There is always more to learn. And then he says, but there's one important difference between science belief and religious belief. He says that religious belief is much more demanding and dangerous. He says, I believe passionately in quantum theory, but the belief does not threaten to change my life in any significant way. I cannot believe in God, however, without knowing that I must be obedient to his will for me as it becomes known to me. God is not there just to satisfy my intellectual curiosity the way quantum physics is. He's there to be honored and respected and loved as my creator and as my savior. Church, that's a really smart guy who puts some things in perspective there. But he realizes that while quantum theory isn't ultimately going to change his life, that his faith, his religious belief, does call for a change in his life. Because if we're going to hold up Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we have to do, as Jesus says, and be obedient. And he came to that very same conclusion, that when you know what's right, you have to be obedient to what is right. Let's look further at Jesus' teaching. We look in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 21. Jesus is in the process of promising or trying to explain, as best one can, the Holy Spirit. And so he is telling uh, his closest followers in the upper room the night that he is arrested that he is uh, that he's leaving, but that he is going to give them an adequate, uh, an advocate, and a counselor. In verse twenty-one, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then in John 15, Jesus says, repeats this again. Uh, verse 9 in John 15. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So Jesus makes it very clear there that we can talk about love all we want, but the one who really loves Jesus is one who listens to his teaching and does what he says. The one who clings to his commands. <coughs> Here's the good news about that, church. When Jesus says, what is it all about? What's the most important thing? He says, well, the most important thing is to love God. And the second is kind of like that. It's to love others. Jesus takes it all. When you think about Jesus' commands, it really comes down to that. That we are to love God and we are to love others. Now, okay, so when it's this presented in this overarching way, it's that simple. Just love God and love others. But yes, that means we have to love all others. We have to love all others all the time. And that's where it gets challenging, right, church? Some people are more easy for us to love than others. But that's what Jesus is saying. If you really love me, then you're really going to work hard to love everyone else all the time, even in those moments where they are anything but lovable. That's what Jesus asks us to do. As for his own obedience, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 sums that up. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus himself, when he needed to be, could show us what it looked like to be obedient. If we're going to reflect the image of God, it means that we're not only recipients of his love and his grace and his mercy but that we reflect that love and grace and mercy to others. That's the task that is always before us, church, each and every day. May we leave this place today and be thinking about how can we, how we can be the image of God to those that we come in contact with. That in seeing us, in seeing our kindness, in hearing our words of encouragement and kindness, our words of optimism, because we are people who have a hope and a future, that in doing so, they will experience the image of God. If you're with us today and you have not yet publicly proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord, acknowledging that He died for your sins, then in just a moment we're going to offer an invitation. And the first act of obedience upon making that profession of faith 
is baptism. And those waters of baptism are available this morning. Why would you put it off any longer if you've not yet become a child of God? Let today be the day. If you're with us this morning and there's something else that you need to bring before us that we can pray with you about, whatever that concern might be, the invitation is offered for that reason also. Let's stand together and sing.